guys how about that music i want to thank again becca and fred for making that awesome intro for us this is uh the second podcast for uh landmine radio the alaska landmine podcast uh, this is jeff landfield i want to thank uh, BuzzBiz creative for letting us use their studio and film uh, and do the podcasts uh, BuzzBiz, if you're looking for any kind of marketing creative work um they're also doing more political stuff now so any anything with politics and video and mail and graphic uh get a hold of BuzzBiz. i'm joined by margaret stock my my good friend hello margaret Hi, Jeff. I'm pleased to be here today. Thanks for inviting me to do a podcast with you. I'm, I'm very happy you agreed. Uh, should we call you Colonel Stock or just uh, Margaret? No, you can just call me Margaret. I'm retired. I'm a retired lieutenant colonel in the military police in the Army Reserve, but you can call me Margaret. So you are um, an expert on all matters immigration. Uh, I'm an expert on national security and immigration. And we have a kind of an interesting way we met, kind of a, almost maybe a Kind of a creepy way, and, and some might say. Yeah, you were stalking me, apparently. So my, fr- I had a friend who had a pretty serious immigration challenge many years ago, back in 2010. He left the country for what was supposed to be a month, and it took him many, many eight years to come back. But I was trying to help him, and a lot of people said you were kind of you're the immigration lawyer to talk to, and I tracked down your phone number, but at the time you were still teaching at West Point. Right, I was a reserve officer teaching part-time at West Point, and I wasn't taking on any private immigration cases. I was only working for the government at the time. But I really wanted to help my friend, and I kept calling you. You did. You kept calling me all the time. and um, You said, my, call me in a month, and I called you in a month, and then you said, call me, and I kept... Right. Well, I was getting close to my retirement date in the Army Reserve, which was June of 2010, and I wasn't going to take any private immigration cases until after I retired from the Army. So eventually you did come back to Alaska... Um, permanently and from West Point and then you got a job at a law firm here and you got back a hold of me and said come over and uh, we can talk and then I came over and we did a consulting thing and long story short it took I don't know I guess a couple more years for my friend to come back but but this is kind of how I got to know you through, through him and then um, I started getting really involved in adv- advocating for you know immigration reform and, and just explaining immigration to people because I think it's such a complicated topic and a lot of people try to simplify it to a to a very basic come in come leave you know come get a visa come in that's it well it is people simplify it and it's extraordinarily complicated and that's one of the things that i think drives most people who are knowledgeable about immigration crazy is that there's so much misinformation out there and people try to simplify it the the common thing i heard is i hear all the time is there's all these people who are here illegally. Why don't they just get in line, you know, as if there is some line, but there's no line. I mean, people think there's a line because a couple hundred years ago, I guess you could line up at the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island and, you know, talk to an immigration agent and they might let you in, but that's not how the system works anymore. So before, so 1986, there was a big immigration bill that was passed that Reagan signed, right? Right. Well, there was the Reagan bill and then there was another reform 10 years later under Clinton. But before, so before 86, and I think... This is where I try to understand it um, from a conservative perspective. Before that, you could basically, if somebody wanted to hire somebody, if an American business wanted to hire somebody, they could just hire somebody. You didn't have to ask the government for permission to work. Right. Right. Prior to 1986, nobody in America needed permission to work. You could just, if somebody was in the U.S. and they were willing, able to work, you could hire them. 1986, for the first time, the federal government took over employment of everybody in America. And this is a brand new thing. And strangely, conservatives didn't question it, even though it seems beyond the power of the federal government to say whether a person's allowed to work or not. But in 1986, the federal government decided that they were the decider. When a person, a citizen or anybody else decided that they wanted to get a job, the federal government was going to intervene and basically force employers in America to enforce the immigration laws by regulating the workplace. So we now have a law that first started in 1986 it says if you get a job in america the first day you show up at work you got to show your papers to your employer so, so before before that for the vast majority of the history of the united states more than 200 years the whole um, history before that before that the federal government didn't tell employers who they couldn't could and could not hire and what what kind of what was the main driver behind behind this well, the theory was that if the federal government started forcing employers to enforce the immigration laws, that there wouldn't be any more unauthorized immigration. 
people had this concept. Oh, good theory. That, oh, good theory. It didn't work. Yeah, you can tell. Um, but the theory was that the reason people are coming to America is because there are jobs here and they want to work. So immigrants are coming to America in order to work. And if we stop them from being able to get a job, then they won't come. And the idea was we're going to dry up illegal immigration by making employers enforce the immigration laws. And if we make the employers enforce the immigration laws, they won't hire anybody who's not authorized to work, and then people will just self-deport to leave the U.S. They and clearly this hasn't at all it, worked. This did not work at plan. all. It completely backfired. So, and then you said 10 years later there was another uh, bill or all Right, so 10 reform. years later under Clinton, Clinton signed the harshest immigration law in American history. It was super complicated. People didn't even read it before they voted for it. It was attached to a defense bill. Extremely complicated law, and it put into effect a lot of crazy things like part of it was a law that said if you were in the U.S. illegally and you left you were banned from coming back for a certain number of years three years or ten years or permanently depending on what you did and that's what happened to my friend but it was a the government made a mistake about his status and he had to end up took a long time to fight and a lot of money right and he got this this 10-year ban which which eventually was we proved that it was incorrectly uh put on him but it was just, it's like, you know, it's, fight, it's fighting a, 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 the Borg. Right. Well, the 1996 immigration laws that Clinton signed were incredibly complicated. They're basically full employment for immigration lawyers. And they were also laws that ended up getting appealed repeatedly to the United States Supreme Court. In fact, there's people are still appealing changes who, that were made to the 1996 immigration laws to the who U.S. Was, Supreme uh, Court. Was Newt Gingrich still the speaker then, or was that somebody in 96? Was that oh, somebody 96. else? Oh, 96. Gosh, I can't even remember. But... Um, do you remember where the Congress was Republican or split? Or well, it was Clinton was president Pre- in 1996, and it was a. It, I mean, it's not terribly relevant because it was a defense bill. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they took all this stuff that were kind of the favorite tough immigration laws that different congressmen and senators had, and they just slapped it all into a big hash in conference and then stuck it on a defense bill. And it was called the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. It was say, wait, wait, say that again? Yeah, IRA-IRA is what the lawyers IRA, call it. IRA-IRA. Re- say it again? Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. That right there kind of tells me, like, whoa, this is this probably is Right, and they were going to stop illegal immigration for all time with this bill because it was going to be so tough that Nobody was ever going to be able to come to America illegally if they broke the law, essentially. Nobody was going to be able to come legally if they had ever broken the law. That was the theory. And, of course, at the time they passed it, they hadn't read it. And, you know, this is a typical thing that happens in Congress. They pass some giant bill and nobody reads it. And then, of course, after they passed it, all of a sudden there was screaming and howling uh, because it turned out a whole bunch of people were getting banned from the U.S. that nobody had intended to get banned from the U.S. Like who? Oh, a congressman's favorite constituent, for example, you know, immediately there was just howling and screaming from constituents because all of a sudden their relatives were being banned from the U.S. I don't know. I can give you an example, okay? One person I know of who has been banned from the U.S. because of the 1996 bill is an elderly woman who's married to a U.S. military veteran, and she uh, was in the U.S., didn't have an immigration lawyer, filed the wrong kind of papers, didn't get her status straightened out because the laws were too complicated, ended up getting deported from the U.S. because she didn't have a lawyer and she didn't really understand what was happening. And then her son was in the United States Marine Corps. She was down in Mexico because she'd been deported. Her son was in the U.S. Marine Corps, and he was getting deployed. And he was banned from going down to Mexico because it's too dangerous. The Marine Corps said, you're not allowed to go down to Mexico because it's too dangerous. So he couldn't see his mom before he was getting deployed. So she walked up to the border to ask permission from the Border Patrol to be paroled into the U.S. so she could see her son before he got deployed. And instead of being nice to her, the Border Patrol arrested her and charged her with a crime for having attempted to re-enter the U.S. after having been deported. So they arrested her. They put her in jail. What kind Um, of... This is not regular jail, right? This is like immigration jail? No, this was a regular jail. This was a federal district court criminal conviction for having attempted to re-enter the U.S. after she got deported. Now, again, she wasn't really trying to re-enter. She was just trying to get permission to see her son before he got deployed. And instead of processing her request for parole or telling her, go away, you know, we can't let you in, they said, oh, you're trying to come in illegally after you got deported, so we're going to arrest you. And she had a public defender who pled her guilty, and she did a couple months in jail. And then they deported her again. And, of course, she's also married to a military veteran, and she's elderly. 
an elderly woman mm-hmm. with no other criminal convictions other than this, you know, trying to come into the U.S. illegally after you got deported. And this is the kind of thing I, I always I try to tell people when they say, you know, just just you know, get in line or fill out the paperwork. And, and I have a lot of friends who have come here, you know, for school and gotten married or have, have somehow, you know, come to the country. And, and I've, I've just kind of seen some of the, the paperwork. It, it is it is just it's never ending paperwork. And I mean, and a lot of these people can't afford a law. I mean, I don't know. You're an immigration attorney. I, I know it's not cheap to come if you want to do something with immigration it's not exactly well it's not cheap because it's so complicated and it takes hours and hours and the the rules are just extremely convoluted so just to go back to the situation so we got an elderly woman who was born in mexico who would have had a green card a long time ago except she couldn't afford a lawyer and never got her paperwork straightened out and her husband can't get her back in the country now he's a military veteran retired elderly guy her son's deployed her son's in the marine corps and he's deployed and she's just not allowed in the U.S. because we're enforcing these 1996 immigration laws. So the, these are, laws are still on the books? Oh, yeah. The yeah. They haven't repealed any of them. And for a while, there was a Fix 96 movement, you know, where people were trying to get the laws overturned after they passed and Congress realized what they had passed. But immigration is such a politically hot issue, and it's it's one of these issues Congress just can't seem to fix. You know, everybody has an opinion on it. Everybody thinks the system's broken, but nobody can agree on a solution. So nothing ever gets fixed. So we just have this massive mess where everybody needs a lawyer. The lawyers are really expensive. There aren't enough lawyers. The government's always doing kind of crazy things, you know, that people don't approve of. And then they say, well, we must enforce the law. But when you go look at the law, you realize the law is like crazy. A lot of the laws are crazy. I mean, why would you want to... Well, how about, how about, somebody from the U.S. who's trying to comply with the law. How, how about all of the? Sense. How about all of the Vice News and other people? I think you've you've been on, um, PBS. You've been on some several NPR and I think Vice oh, I've even talking Vice, about. I've been on I've been on National Public Radio. Talking on, about the uh, the, the vet, shows. military veterans who have been who have been who have been deported to right. Mexico. Well, There's 90, a whole group 96, of ninety six. One of the uh, um, one of the fallout pieces of the nineteen ninety six legislation was that military veterans started getting deported. Prior to 96, they hardly ever deported a military veteran. I mean, it was extremely rare because there was discretion in the law, and most immigration judges would go, gosh, you served your country honorably in wartime. I'm not going to deport you, and they would usually grant people relief from deportation. But after 96, it was this zero tolerance for any kind of immigration law violations, and so military vets started getting deported. And that was actually one of the things they predicted when they passed the law. So, so before this, you they could said that was going to start happening. You, you could you could be in the country illegally, or you could you could have some problem with your paperwork or something, and you could but you could still join the military. Well, and yeah, you couldn't join the military if you were illegally here. Then how would they get to? Why, they would why have they... green cards. So what happens is people get a green card, they join the military for whatever reason. They don't get citizenship through the military. Usually, it was because they were too busy getting deployed and they never filed the paperwork or whatever. And then after they left the military, they would violate the immigration laws somehow. And there's this zero tolerance for... Like getting in a fight or something? Or Oh, I had a case with a Marine that was getting deported because he got into a fight and punched somebody in the nose. I remember I remember that. So he got in, the, in, the, right. in a bar or something, right? Right. He was in a fight at a party and he punched some guy in the nose. And they considered that an aggravated felony something, under immigration law, even though he only spent a couple of days in jail. Something Marines probably do sometimes. Marines get into fights a lot. You know, in fact, they're trained to get into <laughs> they're fights. Probably, so, that's what they're tra- yeah, and trained And he got into a fight with another Marine. You know, that was the thing. And the Marine Corps didn't think it was a big deal. You know, they just said, okay, you know, kind of slapped him on the wrist, and he stayed in the Marine Corps after that. But and you, you were military police when you were in the military, yeah, I was right? Military so, police so you have some some background. I've gotten some... into a lot of fights, yeah, or broken up a lot of fights, I should say, or you know, had to intervene in a lot of situations, especially people in bars getting drunk and doing stupid stuff. Um, but w- one of the problems with the 1996 law was it it created this bizarre definition of aggravated felony under the immigration laws. And it was a laundry list of offenses that different congressional representatives and senators thought should be bad, you know, things that you should get kicked out of the country for. So is is aggravated felony, is that pulling from a... It's a term of art, (laughs) which means it doesn't make any sense. So that's not not a term in in regular law. No, it's not a term in regular law. So uh, it's not, it's a laundry list of offenses in the immigration code. It says the term aggravated felony is, and then there's like a whole list of random things that some of them are pretty serious things like murder, but other things are pretty minor. And it's this random laundry list of stuff. And so a a person can be considered an aggravated felon under immigration law for doing things that aren't even felonies and aren't aggravated. Like what's an example? Well, for example, okay, uh, there was a case in Washington State a few years ago where this Navy sailor, before joining the Navy, he had borrowed his friend's bike. 
but the friend said he hadn't given him permission. Okay. Like a bicycle? So it was a bicycle theft. <laughs> okay. And so he supposedly got accused of stealing this bicycle and the guy got the bicycle back, but he said he didn't have permission to take the bike or whatever. So he gets arrested for bicycle theft and he spends a couple days in jail and he had a defense to the case, but he had a public defender and the public defender said, well, you just plead guilty. You'll get out of jail. And not, 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 over. not knowing this was going to affect right. his immigration status. Right. right. So then later on he joins the Navy and the Navy didn't think it was a big deal. You know, it was a misdemeanor in Washington state. And so the Navy let him in and he's doing great in the Navy and he's having a great career in the Navy. And then he applies for citizenship. His citizenship application gets denied by the Seattle USCIS office. The reason for the denial CIS was citizen citizenship and immigration services. They said, you can't be approved for citizenship if you're an aggravated felon. Because you stole the bike. Bicycle theft is an aggravated felony under immigration law. And yes, we know it's a misdemeanor in Washington state and we know you only did a couple days in jail and everything. But under the definition of aggravated felony in the immigration code, you are an aggravated felon because you pled guilty to this theft offense. Okay, so the guy could not become a citizen. And they also sent him a letter and they said, if you stay in the Navy, we won't arrest you. But the minute you're discharged from being in the Navy, we're going to come and arrest you and put you in detention center and deport you because aggravated felons are subject to mandatory detention and deportation from the United States. And there's no relief available to you. So, you know, this is just... That sounds to me. That sounds absurd to me. I mean, I think people can agree that, you know, at least I, I, I think we don't want bad people, murderers or rape people who really did, did something bad. They don't, we don't want them in the country. But it, it seems like this whole thing is just some general blanket policy, where a lot of people who, who I think, the majority of people would agree they're fine to be here. Can't, well, can't stay. You know, it's pretty clever by Congress, right? They create this term that sounds really bad, aggravated felon, you know, and then they go to their constituents, hey, we voted for all the aggravated felons to be detained and deported. I mean, to the average person, that sounds really good. But then you look at what the definition of an aggravated felony is, and it includes a guy punching a guy in the nose at a party. It includes a guy who spent two days in jail because his friend claims he didn't give him permission to borrow his bike. You know, I mean, these people are not by any way, shape, or form considered aggravated felons. And these are these are people that are that are in the military that are serving. Oh yeah, serving both, the country. both guys were in the military, and they honorably discharged too. You know, the guy in the Navy, by the way, solved his problem eventually. He got a pardon from the Washington State Governor for his little offensive. But I assume he had a good lawyer, or somebody helping him. Yeah, to he got. Do that. He finally got a lawyer after he figured out that he was an aggravated felon. He got a pardon from the governor, you know, of Washington State. But not everybody can get that, you know. And a lot of people can't get pardons from whatever governor. Well, I think kind of getting to know, you know, knowing you and, and seeing some of the work you've done, and whether you know, the, I, I know these things come up where there's been situations where spouses of of, of you know soldiers have been detained or you know deported. Subject to deportation. Oh, yeah, that's going on, too, because they have zero tolerance for, you know, anybody's family members, and there's no exception for military. It, so the military people's spouses are getting deported and their kids. And So what, one thing I've learned or observed, observed is the the immigration people, the, the ICE or the CIS, they, they hate bad press. And sometimes when some of these uh, situations go in the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post or Vice, all of a sudden they kind of quickly get solved. Well, that's true. The press is actually very powerful. In fact, I had this happen two weeks ago. I had a individual who had enlisted in the army, and ICE had ordered him to come and report in because he had, he was waiting to ship out to basic training, and his visa had expired. And so they called him in to try to deport him. Okay, and he's waiting to ship out to training. And there had been some screw up with his paperwork at the Pentagon. The army had messed up his paperwork somehow. And I called the ICE guys, and I said, are you sure you want him to come in? And they're like, yeah, Homeland Security investigation. We called headquarters. you got to come in, bring him in and everything. So I bring him in. We report in. And they go, we have to write you up. We're really sorry. Headquarters said your status expired. You know, So even though you signed this Army enlistment contract and you're waiting to ship out, we're going to have to deport you. You know, I'm like, you guys got to be kidding. And they're like, no, sorry. Headquarters is making us do this. So I called uh, Stars and Stripes, called a reporter for Stars and Stripes. And, of course, she immediately does a story. And then National Public Radio picked it up. And as soon as NPR did a story about it, I got a call from ICE saying, oh, sorry, we're canceling the notice to appear. We're not going to have them. Yeah, there's, there's we're been not so, going to deport them after all. There's been know? so many, I mean, stuff I've seen from you and, and, you know, Wall Street Journal or NPR. And then I've seen stuff on Vice where they've, there's been the, the, the military veterans who have been deported or just guy, one guy he had been here for 20 years and he'd come here when he was pretty young and he got married. He had an American wife, kids, a business. I mean, the whole thing. 
Oh, there's, and, there's and he got pulled a lot over. Of crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I got one I can tell you about right now that I'm defending the guy in immigration court in Alaska. He's a fisherman. Came to the U.S. as a little kid from Poland as a refugee. His father was granted refugee status, and he was a derivative. So he's lived in the U.S. his whole life, and he was out in Dutch Harbor filling out a fishing license application. And he was living on a boat at the time, so he put down the boat address as his address for his fishing license. And some Alaska state trooper thought this was suspicious or something, and he wrote him up for putting a false address on a fishing license. This is unsworn falsification under the Alaska Code. Well, the guy had put the correct address down. He was living on a boat, but the trooper thought it was fishy, so he wrote him a ticket. Fishy. Huh? Yeah, fishy. <laughs> so he shows up in court, and he doesn't have a lawyer, and he gets a magistrate on the phone from Anchorage. He's out in Dutch. And the magistrate, he tries to argue with the magistrate, saying, hey, I put the correct address down on the fishing license you know i'm not guilty and everything and the magistrate just is just like well you know if you plead guilty today you can go back out fishing and just pay a fine and go back out not, fishing. and not knowing it's going to affect his right. immigration so the guy goes okay you know because he's going to otherwise have to pay money get a lawyer and everything and nobody's threatening to jail him and stuff and so he pleads guilty to something he didn't do, which is unsworn falsification on a fishing. Which license. happens all the time in this country. I mean, the, the, don't most cases go to go to plea, plea bargains and the well, vast a lot of majority people plead guilty because it's too much trouble to fight it. You know, so he pleads guilty because it's too much trouble to fight it, and he doesn't know any better. And they don't warn him that he's going to get deported for this. They probably don't even know, do they? And then then he applies for citizenship, and of course he admits on the citizenship application that he has this conviction for unsworn falsification for putting his correct address down on the fishing license but the trooper thought it was a fake address so next thing you know his citizenship application is denied and they're trying to deport him because it's a crime involving moral turpitude to put a false address down on even a though it wasn't license. false right right but he pled guilty to it right, right yeah. so now the guy's in deportation proceedings and the government's trying to deport him and I keep arguing to the judge, you know, hey, he didn't really do anything wrong. And the judge is like, well, I'm stuck with it. He pled guilty, you know, under the immigration law, the 1996 immigration law. All I can do is look at what he pled guilty to, and that's a crime involving moral turpitude. You know, it's base, vile, and depraved to put a false address down on a fishing license application. And so you're going to be deported, even though you've lived in the U.S. your whole entire life, except for when you were a little kid. You know, Probably doesn't even years. speak Polish. He, well, I think he speaks a little bit, but, you know, he's been living in Alaska his whole career pretty much recently. And people in Alaska don't speak Polish that much Not really. Anymore. Maybe, maybe Not some anymore. Maybe some Russian. Yeah. Because of Russians here. But anyway, so. Poles and Russians have a, their own kind of So we'll probably have to history. take that case up to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, they'll probably rule that crime involving moral turpitude is unconstitutionally vague, and therefore the law is unconstitutional. So what does something, like that, what something like that cost? Oh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get to the Supreme Court. But that's what people are doing. Every the, the Supreme Court of the United States has been hearing tons of immigration cases lately because everybody is trying to appeal because the law doesn't make any sense and the laws don't, they're just not coherent and they're just too harsh. And so the Supreme Court is taking a lot of these cases. So this guy from Alaska could end up potentially he in could the... could end up in front of the United States Supreme Court, yep. And that would be, you'd be arguing it? Or? I would attempt to argue it, yeah. Have you argued before the Supreme Court before? Never, never. Alaska Supreme Court you have? Yes, Alaska Supreme Court, but not the U.S. Supreme Court, no. So, okay, I want to talk about a few, okay, I, I want to keep going because I could probably talk to you, I could, we have talked in the past for hours, but I'd love to talk to you for, do a five-hour podcast, right. but I want to talk about two more things. I want to talk about... Um, Children in cages? I want to talk no. about that one, but first okay. I want to talk about real quick the, the MAVNI, the, the, you know, kind of the combining your military experience with your immigration experience. You when you were at the Pentagon, started a program. Um, let me see if I get it right. Military Ascension Vital to National Interest. Military Ascension is vital to the national interest. Pretty, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm pretty, it's I, pretty good. Pretty yeah, good. You're, I got, you're I, doing better than most people. I, yeah. I got it. It's so, an acronym. So, yeah. you, so you were there, and there was a situation where the military, right now and before, but especially now, they're having a hard time finding new, new recruits because of the weight issues or physical issues or mental issues. Criminality. Or crimin criminal issues. Yep. And you, you kind of had an idea let's let's didn't you find some old law on the books from like 1900 or something Sure. well it, it actually wasn't that new an idea i mean the u.s has been recruiting immigrants for the military since 1775 george washington recruited up tons of germans for the continental army didn't we get a lot of ha haitians in here at some point or well throughout american military history the great strength of the u.s military has been immigrants because you know, that was one of our grievances against King George, Declaration of Independence. You know, he wasn't letting immigrants come to our shores. 
And immigrants have always joined the military in large numbers. The Irish in the early 1800s were joining the military. In fact, the officers in the army at the time thought the Irish were going to be a threat to national security because they were speaking Gaelic and they were fighting and drinking and stuff. And they were a huge percentage of the enlisted soldiers in the 1800s because they would show up in America, immigrate here, and join the military. It was an Irish thing back then. And the Irish were one of the reasons why the Union Army won the Civil War, because the Union Army was able to recruit more Irish than the Confederates were able to. And so it turned the tide for the Union Army having all these immigrants. But fast forward, immigrants have always served in the military. After 9-11, though, the numbers had dropped significantly. And that was because the legal immigration system was such a mess that nobody could get a green card anymore. And the Pentagon had self-imposed a green card requirement. They said you had to have a green card to join the military. So before 9-11, you could join with just... In prior wars, you could just join if you were able-bodied and you were in the United States and you were willing to serve and you met military enlistment requirements. You didn't have to have a green card. So during the Vietnam War, they drafted unauthorized immigrants from Mexico like crazy. Huge numbers of unauthorized immigrants served in the The, the military did. Yeah, the military did. Drafted them. Yeah. They, and they got green cards after that or citizenship? No, they got citizenship for serving honorably during wartime. Okay. But a lot of them got deployed. In fact, um, Al Rascon was a really famous undocumented immigrant from Mexico who got drafted, and he went over to Vietnam, and he got the Congressional Medal of Honor. I've, I've, heard, I've heard of him before. Yeah, and right. he got his citizenship, and then they put him in charge of the draft after he was a citizen. They made him the director of selective service. Nice. Yeah, so he went from being an unauthorized immigrant from Mexico to being a Congressional Medal of Honor winner and the director of selective service, so he could draft other Mexicans into the U.S. military. He's still, is he still alive? He's still alive. Yeah, he's retired, but he's still alive. I testified with him at a congressional hearing once, Senate Armed Services Committee hearing. But anyway, so the military was short, highly qualified recruits, especially recruits who spoke foreign languages. And they decided to recruit legal immigrants who did not yet have a green card, but who were in the U.S. legally and who spoke strategic languages. And an example of this, um, the other day, the Mayor's Midnight Sun Marathon, the winner of the Mayor's Midnight Sun Marathon the other day was uh, Mabney. I saw that, yeah. The yeah, he was recruited for his Swahili language skills. Right, I saw he won, he, won, he won it. Yeah, I think it's like the fourth time he's won, but he's a Mavni. He's one of the guys I recruited. So so you, so you um, if I recall correctly, I think you've talked about this and I've read it. They said when you kind of proposed this, didn't they say it was going to take five years or ten or some long number? The well, Pentagon people told okay, you Okay, so I gave a briefing to the Secretary of the Army about my idea, which was, hey, just use these old laws that you have on the that's books. It's pretty, that pretty high-level briefing. It was a high-level briefing. It was Secretary, pretty funny, Secretary especially because I didn't know I was supposed to give the briefing, and I just got called out from the audience like, hey, give a briefing to the Secretary of the Army. This Literally, this four-star general was sitting there, and he pointed to me. I was in the back row of a room full of officers. Did you, did you know him? or did I knew him, but I didn't realize he was going to call me up on the carpet to explain my idea to the Secretary of the Army because nobody had told me. They just told me to go to this meeting and so sit, there was a lot, back. Of, a lot of people were in the in the room yeah there were a couple the... hundred people in the room yeah wow and the general turns around points to me and goes you get up front and tell the secretary what you told me last week so i come trotting up to the front you <laughs> put know you on the spot he put me on the spot yeah and i had no idea i was supposed to be telling the secretary anything so i explained everything in pretty simply you know sir you got the authority to recruit these immigrants you don't have to change any laws or anything just use the legal authority you already have and the secretary of the army looked at me and he said i can do that and I go, yes, sir, you can do that. Huh. And he goes, is that a fact or is that your opinion, counselor? And I go, that's a fact. And the whole room started laughing. Everybody was laughing. So the secretary said, okay, put her, she's a reservist, put her on active duty until she gets this through the Pentagon. So he can, just do, he can just say, bam, active duty. Yeah, he said, bam, put her on active duty. She's a reservist, put her on active duty until she gets this idea through the Pentagon. And I got a little worried because I was living in Alaska. I had a family here. And I was a reservist, and I used to fly out to New York to teach at West Point, but it was part-time. You know, I wasn't, like, full-time on active duty. And I got a little worried because it sounded like I was going to be on active duty for a while, you know, because I'd never worked at the Pentagon. I didn't know how to get a project through the Pentagon, but I'd heard stories. You know, the Pentagon is infamous for being this convoluted bureaucratic maze where it's very difficult to get things done. And I'd never worked there before, so I figured, hey, I'm in over my head here. So I called this friend of mine who had been a service secretary— and he'd worked at the Pentagon a lot, and I'd known him for years. And I called him up, and I said, hey, I got this idea, and the Secretary of the Army just told me he's putting me on active duty until I get the idea through the Pentagon. And this friend of mine just laughed. He goes, he goes Margaret, the Pentagon crushes great ideas. <laughs> he said, they crush great ideas. And he goes, I predict you won't get this through the Pentagon. He said, I don't think it's going to get through. It's a great idea. It's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. But 
I predict you're not going to get it through the Pentagon. But if you get it through, it's going to take you at least five years to get this through the Pentagon. So I was a little just dismayed because, by this. Just right? because it's like a bureaucracy and people don't want to maybe right. get people and credit for doing... And all these power centers and people fighting and everybody's got their pet project and money rules. And this was, this, this was not... There's no defense contractor with a lot of money that was going to make a lot of money from this project. So, and there's people in the Pentagon that work that are former military that... They're, they're now contractors or something. Oh, so yeah. So the place is very, very political. Some, some double know? dippers. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of them. So um, I went back. I had this estimate of five years. And then I went back and talked to my husband. Okay, my husband's an attorney. Yeah, what did Neil say? I don't know. What, well, what, what did Neil my say? My husband's known me for decades. You know, we've been married for more than 25 years. And he um, he's never been in the military. He's never worked at the Pentagon. But he knows what I'm like. And he goes, he goes well, what do you have to do to get this through the Pentagon? And I said, well, i got to get a memo signed by, like, the secretary. And he goes, a memo? Well, you can probably get that done in about two weeks. Secretary that put you put you there, right? Yeah, right. So he says, a memo? You just have to get a memo signed. That'll take two weeks, right? So I have these two estimates. One from my husband who's never worked at the Pentagon and never been in the military. He says two weeks, but he knows me really well. And this other guy that knows me really well, but he worked at the Pentagon. And he said five years. So split it down the middle, two and a half years. Okay, so I, I got armed with these two estimates. In January 2008, I started working on the project. And I... I had this unusual deal where I told them I really couldn't work full time. So they said, okay, you live in Alaska. We'll fly you back and forth to the Pentagon and you can work on this part time. You can work out of your house, whatever you want. Just work on this project until you get it done. And we'll fly you back and forth, but you have to come to the Pentagon when you need to do meetings and brief people and everything. I said, okay, fine. So they put me on active duty special work part time on and off. And I'm working out of my house in Alaska, basically, and flying back and forth to the Pentagon. I started working in January 2008, and I got the memo signed by the Army Secretary in May 2008. So what was that, five months? January, February, March, March April, April, five May. Months. Right, okay. So so Neil, Neil, your husband, was way closer. He was way closer, right. Than the and, other guy. But then, they, then the Army Secretary signed off on it, and then all of a sudden DOD bureaucrats said, aha, we can get credit for this great, brilliant project if we apply it to all the services. So now we want you to get the Secretary of Defense. Oh, so initially it was just for the Army. Initially it was just for the Army, right. So then they said, now we want you to get the Secretary of Defense to sign off on it. Okay. Who was that? No way. That was Robert uh, Gates. Gates. So okay. then I had this other project. Okay, so now I, it's extended. I thought I got my project done, but no, it's... So the Defense Secretary, if he signs it, it goes to the, the Navy and the Everybody. Air Force right. and the... Right. So it, then it took me until November to get the Secretary of Defense to sign it. So... January, February, March, April, May, I got the Secretary of the Army to sign it. June, July, August, September, October, November, Gates signs off on it. So then I thought I was done. Did you meet Gates? No, I didn't actually meet him. I was paper pushing, you know, going around different people, getting memos signed and everything. There were, were there, a lot were of memos obstruct- involved. Were there obstructionist people? who were Oh, like, yeah. No, no, there were or... some good stories about that, too. I'll tell you in a minute. So um, Gates signs off on it, and I thought I was done. I get to go back to Alaska, live my life, whatever. Nope. They said, now that you got this memo signed by the Secretary of Defense, you're going to be the project officer for implementing this project. Like, you got to like be ne- kidding. It's like the never-ending No, it was project. like the never-ending. So then I was the project officer, and then they said, well, there's no budget for this project or anything other than, like, your reserve duty part-time, which, you know, we're going to pay you for doing your part-time so reserve you, duty. You were lieutenant, lieutenant colonel, right? Lieutenant colonel. You should have asked him to make you colonel. I should have, but... I'll do it um, if I could be a colonel. Yeah, right. But they... Anyway, so I kept working on the project, but I was working part-time managing this project. And they had no money for the budget or anything for advertising or marketing. So they put me in charge of all the public affairs for the program. Did, didn't, didn't some uh, groups, immigrant groups or Korean, didn't they make their own websites about the pro- program? Oh, it, it took off. It was amazing. We had... We opened the pro- program, and the New York Times did a front-page story about it. And I was the public affairs officer, basically, who got the front-page story. So the New York Times does a story about it, and we got inundated with applicants. So, so t- just real quick, the program allowed um, is, it, is it people that were in the country for at least two years. Yeah, you had to be legally in the U.S. for at least two years, and you had to be in legal status, but you it didn't have a green card yet. Weren't there some crucial like Russian, Korean, or and Urdu we had a or? quota of one thousand people because it was a pilot program, so you couldn't have more than a thousand people for all the branches or for well total for all the branches one thousand people, but the army got eight hundred ninety of the one thousand slots. So the, all the I other was ones, an army officer. So, so all the other ones got right. one hundred and ten. Right. So the navy got a hundred, and the air force got ten, and the marine corps said they didn't want to participate because they said, "quote We don't want to recruit any illegal immigrants." And I kept explaining these weren't illegal. But immigrants. isn't the marines under the navy? They are, but the Navy took the 100 slots because they wanted them for SEALs, Navy SEALs. Oh, right, because okay. of language probably. Right. Would, yeah. right. 
So anyway, the Marine Corps basically didn't participate, which became a joke later on because the Mavenies started winning the Marine Corps marathon. Right. You, you posted right. some, some pictures. Right. Of so the Marines can never win their marathon ever again because of all these Mavenies joining the Army. So the Army keeps winning the Marine Corps marathon. <laughs> Has it, have the Marines changed their mind on it yet? No, no. The Kenyans keep winning. Kenyan Americans in the Army keep winning the Marine Corps marathon. Um, but anyway, so I had there were a lot of obstacles, but I managed to get this project through the Pentagon in less than a year, basically. Which was a, a huge accomplishment. Real quick, I just wanted you told me the story once where there was like a I think it was a mile and a half run, where like a, a, physical, a PT run, and there was a Mavni guy from like I think it was Kenya or somewhere. He he ended up like he lapped. Did well, he it's, lap? It's a two mile run. Two mile run. Training. He was lapping people. He's lapping. He's lapping. Yeah. Well, he's he's a superstar. He's I mean the Kenyan runners that joined. There were a bunch of them from UAA who joined. Including the no, guy, I know the, the, guy, the guy that won the mayor's marathon right. was one of them. But one of them got a silver medal for the United States at the Rio Olympics. He was a Mavni. You got to feel just Paul Chalimo. You're getting lapped, and you got you just really got to feel like. I would just say, yeah, that guy, that guy's really amazing, and I'm just very mediocre. Well, okay, I at my when I was lieutenant, I ran the two mile run in 12:06. That guy would have lapped me for sure. Wow, that's pretty quick. Because he can it's run like, you know, four or something, you know. So he was lapping me for sure so, if I run against him. So the people, uh, they apply for the program, they join, they're, they're, they have one of these languages. And then when they join, they become a citizen, American they get, citizen. They're supposed to get fast-tracked to citizenship. It, that was the way it was until last October. And then the Pentagon decided not to let people fast-track. So the program now is under some kind of, they, they made changes? They suspended it. The, no, the Trump, Trump administration suspended it, right? No, it was actually suspended under the Obama administration. It was a bureaucratic screw-up. Oh, okay. Yeah, it might shock you to hear this, but the Obama administration was not that squared away. The Pentagon, all the time, they had a lot of bureaucrats who were incompetent. Well, and also, they, they, uh, they, the economist years ago called, I think you sent me that article, they, they called Obama the de- deporter-in-chief because there was more deportations. Yeah, under... that's a different department. That was Homeland Security. But, yeah, the Obama administration was setting records for deporting people. Yeah, in fact, Trump has not been setting records for deporting people despite all the news because... Um, he has made so many bizarre changes to the immigration laws that it has actually resulted in fewer people being deported, despite all the talk about so because of co- the border. confusion or confusion. Um, people have a right to a hearing. They keep grabbing all these people that haven't done a whole lot and putting them in deportation proceedings, and then they win their cases. I've had that happen a couple of times in Alaska where, you know, the Trump people grabbed somebody and said, oh, we're going to deport this guy. And then I won their case. So they're not getting deported. So so be, being in the country, um, if I'm correct, being in the country illegally is not a criminal. It's a civil violation, right? It's a civil violation. It's not a criminal. Right. Vi- right. Because if it was criminal, they, they would be afforded a, a public defender. Well, that was the other thing. They Years ago, I testified at a congressional hearing where they were talking about making it a felony to be in the U.S. illegally. But then they realized that they were going to have to give people due process, including a public defender, federal defender, if they charged them with a felony. And they don't want people to have lawyers, so they don't charge them with a felony. They charge them with being in the country illegally as a civil violation, in which case they don't get lawyers at taxpayers' expense. They Mm -hmm. have to go pay for their own lawyer or represent themselves like those little kids in court are doing. Yes, I want to to talk about that. I just want one more quick story. You said, wasn't there... Um, a Chinese, a Mavni who was Chinese up here that was like a lawyer or something. I forget. They ended up, there was like a Chinese delegation coming here and she, she oh, was. Oh yeah, that, that's true. Um, wasn't, wasn't she driving? There was a, a Chinese military delegation visiting Jay Bear and they pulled her out of the ranks. And yes, she was an American lawyer, but, but she, she wasn't was dri- a lawyer. She, wasn't she like driving a truck or something? Yeah, they had her driving a truck because she didn't have a security clearance, you know, because she wasn't a citizen. So she couldn't be a lawyer in the army. But spoke spoke Mandarin. She spoke Mandarin fluently, right? So they pulled her out of the ranks. They had her translate. She did a really great job. She got a medal. The general at Jay Bear gave her a medal. Yeah, she did great. But the Mavnies were all pretty highly educated people. You know, they generally had a bachelor's degree, master's degree. A lot of them had PhDs. Wasn't, wasn't there one that was uh, there was some special op in Africa, and and he he like spoke. Maybe it was Swahili, but he, he like knew, knew some of the people involved. And the... Yeah, there was one. He was working with special forces, and they deployed him to the village that he was from in Africa. So he knew everybody in this village. And he came back to the village with special forces, and he's wearing an American military uniform. And everybody in the village knows the guy. And they're like, wow. He was like this returning hero, you know? It was like the Black Panther comes back or something, mm-hmm. you know? And the village just welcomed him, and they said it was the most successful special forces operation ever because he knew everybody in the village. He knew all their secrets from when they were little kids, you know, whose fish they stole and 
whatever. Oh, and so he was able to tell us the information, or else I'm going to tell you who stole. Well, this. <laughs> he, was, he was able to understand the local culture perfectly and advise the special forces team about you know who the bad guys are, who the good guys are, and so forth. And they said it was extremely successful operation because of this guy. So, the, so the Ma- the Mavnies overall were just hugely successful. There was no, there was never a marketing budget, was there? No, we never had a marketing budget, but we got amazingly highly qualified people. There was a RAND study that came out recently that said the that was really, really cost effective to what, what were the, these folks. What are the key languages, like Korean, Russian, Urdu, Farsi? Russian, Chinese, Korean, Arabic, Swahili is a strategic language. We have Africa Command now, so we need that language. Um, a lot of tribal languages of Africa, but we don't have the expertise in them, so they just take people from Africa, and you know, a lot of them speak these tribal languages. So how many, really uh, how many over, do you know how many overall Mavnies there have been? Since More than 10,000. Yep. Wow. And yeah. Including the 2012 U S army soldier of the year, including the winner. Oh, that was the, was silver it the, medal was it the Gurk, the Gurkha guy? Uh, he was from Nepal. Yeah. He was a guy from Nepal soldier from Nepal. He's now an officer in the army. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, let's go into, yeah. It's another thing I wanted to talk about was what's going on now in the news. Everybody's, it seems to be everywhere. The, the issue with the kids and, the border and the in the detention, the cages, and then I guess let's let's go. Let's first. Trump said that this was not. He kept saying this was not his doing. This was the law. This was the law. But it seems like he, his administration, or maybe the attorney general, signed some order to say we're starting to do this now. Is that? I mean, tell me what's going on and tell everybody what's really happening because I feel like I don't even know and I read a lot of stuff. But I think you're the person to really break this down for everybody. Well, they did change things. And I, I don't know who's giving the president immigration advice, but whoever it is isn't giving him a straight skinny on things. So this... Would you If, if they said, mm-hmm. Margaret, we want to hire you to be the immigration advisor, would you go do it? I don't know. It depends. <laughs> I mean, the, the problem is there's so much wrong information out there, it's really difficult to, to solve problems when people don't really want to solve the problem. First of all, okay, there's a lot of people heading north from these three countries in Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And White House Chief of Staff John Kelly used to be commander of Southcom, Southern Command. He was the top general at Southern Command, and he's quite familiar with this problem. And he wrote an op-ed in the military newspaper years ago where he said, basically, these three countries have completely broken down, society is broken down. You sent me that. I've read that. Right. He said it was because gangs have essentially taken over these countries. And the gangs that have taken over these countries include MS-13, which is a U.S.-developed gang that started in L.A. many years ago. That's what Trump talks about a lot. Right. And they, it's an American export. Okay. So it developed in America, got exported to Central America by our deportation policy, not by Trump, but by his predecessor presidents who thought we can just deport all these gang members to Central America and then just forget about them. Well, guess what? They took over these three countries after we deported them because we deported so many gang members to Central America the countries there could not absorb them. They had no way to handle them or deal with them. And it was like our deportation flights were the human resources department for MS-13. MS-13 would just hang out at the airport and wait for deportation flights and then recruit off the flights. And there's a chart that I saw years ago that was quite infamous that showed the rise in the power of MS-13 tracked our deportations to Central America. So, so it's they, like now the chickens are co- coming home to roost. Chickens coming home to roost, right. So they took over these three countries, and John Kelly said that it was driven by a couple of things. One is drug demand in the United States. Americans like to use drugs, and these gangs figured out that they could supply the drugs. So we got a market system going on here. Probably uh, mostly cocaine, right? Well, other stuff. Heroin, too, too I guess. Know, probably. Heroin, cocaine, meth, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so Americans have an insatiable demand for drugs, and the gangs were willing to supply them. And the gangs took over Central America. Why not? Yeah, and so what these countries have become very, very dangerous places. If you're a young woman, you're going to get raped by the gang members. You know, it's just a fact. That's what happens. And so people started fleeing north. And they recruit re- recruit young young boys yeah, into yep. the gang, they too. They force boys into the gangs, you know. And so everybody that didn't want to be part of this corrupt cartel system that's going on down there decided that they couldn't survive and they started heading north to freedom and safety and a lot of people by the way have relatives in america so they know it's safe here so they started heading north and one of the things that you don't hear about in the news is that you can't apply for refugee or asylum status if you're from central america unless you get to the u.s border you have to to apply when you you have to either show up at the border and apply at a port of entry you have to get into the u.s somehow so if you can get a visa and you can get into the u.s you can apply for asylum or you have to show up at the border and apply what if you what what if you sneak in or come in illegally you can apply for asylum okay 
So people started showing up at the border, and there were some retired border patrol agents that were actually telling them to do this. They were saying, you should show up at the border and apply for asylum. This is like a couple of years ago when the, the, big, the first big wave of kids that came over, right? Well, they've been coming over for a long time. I mean, the first kid that died in Iraq in 2003, Marine, was a kid who had come from Central America and gotten a green mm-hmm. card as a special immigrant juvenile, and that was back in 2003. I mean, this has been going on for a while. But I guess it, like, I guess it was... Two or three years ago, that was like the when it was really hit the news. That's when, when it, it hit the news. All the all yeah. the kids and drove. And that's and another thing, Jeff, that I think people don't understand. The numbers here are not crazy. It's it's almost like the administration wants to make it seem like a giant crisis, but the U.S. could handle the numbers of people who are coming quite easily if we just put resources into adjudicating their asylum applications. But instead, they decided to manufacture this giant crisis that's going on and make it seem like it's millions of people trying to run across the border. I mean, or something. It's, it's how many? Roughly, how many is it? A, a day or a month, do you... Well, I mean, it's a few thousand kids that are being separated from their family. So I mean, that's of, like out of a country of 320 million. We're 320 million. About I mean, they, zero, zero, if zero. they put the same resources into adjudicating people's cases, making decisions on their asylum applications that they put into, you know, making a big deal out of it in the news media and trying to lock them all up and everything, they would solve the problem. I mean, this this there's numbers are this pretty much similar to what you know we've seen in the past in terms of ability our ability to absorb them we so it's almost absorb- like in some ways maybe a manufactured well the crisis. administration wants to build a wall and they need to get congress to appropriate billions of dollars for the wall and so they're trying to make it seem like there's thought, some giant crisis thought, on the border i thought mexico was going to pay for it <laughs> no not anymore mexico figured that out plus i don't know what's happening in the election today but i don't think mexico was yeah the Me- mexico's having a big election the mayor of uh right. mexico city i forget his name he's supposed to be the new president. Yeah, and I don't think he's going to pay for anything. He's going to give us a middle finger on that. So, um, just like so the administration has to figure fa- out a way to get billions I- for the wall, and in order to get that, they have to make it seem like there's some massive, horrible, terrible threat to national which security is, or crisis going on. Which is, to me, the other interesting thing, because I moved here in 2004. I grew up in New Mexico. So I remember growing up, and it was common for people, Mexicans and people from Mexico, to come over, work, do, do, you know, do make money, and then they go back. And right. they, they'd build a house. Well, it's they, been they'd going support, on for hundreds and, of years. And they'd come back and forth, and you know, the border was kind of open both ways. Uh, and at some point when it became more, 96 maybe was when that started, it became much more difficult. The border got militarized. Even Bush, recent Bush, was all for a guest worker program because I think he realized we need these workers to come here and do a variety of jobs. Well, it's been going on for more than 100 years. I mean, it's called the free market. You know, if you got a job, you hire somebody and they go back to Mexico at the end of the. But season. once the border got militarized, people just decided, well, I'm, I'm not going to go back because right. I, the, I can make money here. Exactly. And and this is like the I don't know. It seems so simple to me. Yet it seems when the conversation is in public, it, it's like this ang- anger, uh, can, maybe confusion, mis- misunderstanding of the issue. And now you're right. Now it's becoming this. It's like every day on the news. It's like this, these kids and half the country screaming at the other half of the country about it. Yeah, we've become so polarized that we can't solve the problem anymore. And I don't, you know, it seems like nobody's willing to, Congress isn't willing to solve the problem. The president is capitalizing on making it seem like a bigger problem than it really is. So, so when the kids started getting separated from the, the parents, that was, that was, that was, was that in fact a, a decision from the administration? That was the Trump administration decided to do that, yeah. And there was nothing that, so they had to do that, they just... They didn't have to do that at all. They could either, you know, release the kids to their parents, let the parents go to their hearing. Most of these people just want to apply for asylum, and they have good asylum claims. What about some of the people say that uh, you, you hear that um, sometimes it's not actually the parents, it's some, it's smugglers or it's people involved well, in child okay, everything's, trafficking. It's complicated, okay? So there are traffickers that traffic kids into the country. You know, that's they're trying to get the kids into the U.S. to apply for asylum or to gain benefit, you know, get some status here. And the parents, sometimes the parents are in the U.S. and they're trying to be reunited with their kids who are in danger down in Central America. So the parents will pay a smuggler to bring their kid to America. And it's, it's pretty bad down there. I mean, isn't Honduras like the highest murder rate in it's the world? It's extremely bad. That's what John Kelly said. He said it was worse than a combat zone down there. So is... I mean, Kelly obviously has an ear to the president. Is he, where well, do you think he is now on this stuff? Well, he seems to have forgotten about the old op-eds that he wrote when he was commander of Southcom. You know, he seems to be pretty quiet on that. But I've used the opinion of John Kelly to win asylum cases for Central Americans. So, so you're involved in this issue. You, you have oh, yeah. these cases, and you're, yeah, you're going I've, down. I've the- had unaccompanied minors show up here in Alaska. You know, really, and I've won asylum for him. I had a teacher at West, or a guidance counselor at West High, or East High School brought a kid in to see me because she said 
he was going to high school here and you know he didn't have a parent and she couldn't figure out what his immigration status was and they'd actually forgotten about him how did he get here uh he walked up to the border and asked for asylum and they detained him for a while and then they released him and he he got on a plane and came to alaska because he had a relative up here and he was staying with his relative wasn't his parents though and so he started he was a teenager started going to east high and the guidance counselor said to him, what's your immigration status? And he said, oh, I don't really have any. And so she dragged him in here to see me because... She just she, knew you and knew, knew of you? or She knew of me. So she brought him in and I said, oh my God. It was a kid that system had basically forgotten about him. So what had happened was he was in detention for a while and they had him in front of the immigration judge. And then the judge didn't know what to do about his case and he didn't have a lawyer. So he administratively closed the case, which meant they put the case on the box in the closet or something and forgot about him. And he hadn't applied for anything, and he had no authorization, and, and you know, he's just, like, lost in the system. So he'd been here for a while? Yeah, he'd been here for a while. So he spoke, I, spoke English? Yep, spoke English. He's graduated from East High School, eventually. Good kid. And he was fleeing the gangs. The gangs were trying to recruit him into the gang, and he didn't want to be part of the gang, so he fled north. You know, went with the rest of the crowd, headed north, and he was granted asylum in the United States, and he's perfectly fine now, and he's a good kid, and he's working hard, and he graduated from East High School. Wow. So you would be proud to meet him today. You'd say, this is a good kid that should be part of America, just like many of our ancestors, you know, like um, Donald Trump's grandfather who came over illegally when he was 16, you know. Well, his, his, uh, his mother was Scottish, right? His mother was an yeah, immigrant. his mother was an immigrant. So his grandfather came here illegally. Well, he was an unaccompanied minor, you know. He jumped on a boat and came over, you know. Back back when you could just come over and go through Ellis Island or Yeah, whatever. but, I mean, he was, he was kind of the equivalent of what, yeah, you know his parents didn't tell him it was okay. Well, the thing is too, there's there's so know? many of these like these DACA, there's the kids that you know got brought here when they were, and I, I don't know, it just it frustrates me because you have you hear people and I see people, you know, on Facebook or just people I talk to, you know, they say send them all home, they have to bring, and I mean it's like some of these kids you talk to them, I mean they're they're American, you would never know they weren't American. I mean if you talk to them, you'd never think they were not an American citizen. Well, there been, are there are millions who've lived in the U.S. since they were little kids, and there's no way for them to get legal. They can't get a green card and they can't get citizenship. So, but they do. You can't tell they're not American citizens. You know, so, so, so Trump. So amazing. they Trump puts the executive order out, and, and now they're gonna supposed to reunite it. But now, now I'm hearing there's all these problems with they don't know how to reunite the people. There's this big bureaucratic well, mess. What's, what's going on? The government's not very good at taking care of children. Okay, so it's complicated. It takes a lot planning, and there was no planning for any of this. They just announced a policy, and they didn't plan properly. They just said, okay, we're going to prosecute the parents, grab the kids, you know, take the kid away from the parent. But there was no planning for, like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to keep track of people? So it's it's been this giant mess, you know, that was self, self-inflicted, self-created. And so now there's parents running around that can't find their kids. Some kids that nobody knows who the parent is you know if you take a three-year-old away from their parent the three-year-old can't tell you who yeah, their parent man, is wow. you know they don't know their parent's name and social security number and you know all that kind of stuff so, so it's become a giant mess it's heartbreaking uh people are rightfully outraged the government doesn't have the capacity to do what the government said it was going to do and now they're doing crazy things like giving people flyers with a number you're supposed to call if you want to find out where your kid is. Yeah, and I you saw, call I the that. guy and he's like, I don't know where your kid is or I can't tell you, you know. So if let's say if Margaret Stock was in charge right now and they said, you, you're totally in charge of this whole thing. I would say what would stop you do? everything and let's take a breather and figure out how we're going to solve this problem. And then I would put a lot of people into adjudicating their asylum applications. These people aren't a threat to America, but you do need to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, there are some bad guys probably trying to sneak in here and there. And But if you do a fair adjudication of people's asylum applications, you can make a decision whether they should be allowed to stay or whether we should deport them. So you, th- you think the system can work if they put enough resources into it? Right now, they're not putting resources into deciding asylum applications. They're putting resources into separating kids from their parents. So you think a lot of this or maybe all of this has to do with this this wall? It seems to be, you know, it seems some kind of bargaining chip. These kids are being held hostage for a wall. What do you think Congress is? I mean, that Congress seems to be not even. Well, Congress has of... been dysfunctional for years. You know, I mean, when when have they ever been able to get their job done? Recently, they're just split. It's polarized. You know, there's a famous saying: um, "Things fall apart when the center can't hold," and that's what's happened. Things are falling apart in Congress, and they so can't what, seem to get anything done. So what do you foresee? For, for I guess there's going to be an election in November. That might impact some of the way the Congress is um, structured with the Demo- potential Democrats take over. I mean, that, that might even make it worse. 
If you have a Democratic Congress well, or you know, one chamber, and the theory of the was if you have a Republican Senate, a Republican Congress, and a Republican President, you're going to be able to get things done, and that's not true. They have well, because the Senate's anything, so close, there's like, right, but they they can't do anything. And the other thing, I think people need to return to basic principles. You know, um, the Constitution doesn't say anything about political parties, and doesn't say anything about polarization. And if you go read the Federalist Papers, this was exactly what they said was going to bring down the Republic eventually. Was this kind of extremism? Mm-hmm. And that's what seems to be happening. How many people in Congress? You follow this stuff. You're you're an expert on immigration matters. How many people? How many people are in Congress? Five hundred thirty-five. There's four thirty-five senators. Four hundred thirty-five. Yeah. So out of the five hundred thirty-five people, how many do you feel really understand the immigration issue? Nobody. Not even one. No, I mean it. It's sound bites, and part of the problem is politicians today spend all their time raising money and running for office. And very few of them actually spend time understanding legislation or understanding how to get things done in Congress. And that's a big problem. And, and you, you, you talked, I mean, you've testified before the House and the Senate and Congress. You, you know a lot of these people. Do, do they talk differently to you one-on-one? Do they say they talk in public? or? Well, they do. Usually when they're at a hearing, they're just trying to get a soundbite that they can play on an election year ad. So they're saying things that are going to sound like a cool soundbite for some ad. They're not actually trying to get work done. Um, and they, when you talk to them privately, they don't have very much time to actually work on legislation because they're spending all their time raising money and trying to get reelected. I mean, mo- the money has corrupted politics. You know, well, I mean, with, Citizens uh, United was a really bad thing, but it's gotten worse. You know, it was worse before then. I, mean, I think that money, book you recommended, the Dark Money book that I, I read, that really well, kind of lays out a lot of how this your works. legislators are spending all their time raising money, they're not dealing with solving problems you're not going to have an effective legislature you know you have to have people and one thing at least in alaska we have this rule they can't raise money while the legislature's in session you know for this for the state for the state that would be a good thing to do at the federal level because then maybe Mm -hmm. senators would actually start reading bills i mean the thing that amazes me is how often a senator will get up or a congressman will get up and they'll talk about a bill and they'll hold a press conference and they'll say the bill is going to do x and then I go actually read the bill, and it doesn't do what they said at all because they never read the bill and they don't know what's in it. So there, there's no. Are there any immigration attorneys in the Congress or attorneys are, that have done immigration? Well, there are a couple, but the problem is that it's such a complex area of the law. If you don't practice in that area every day, you really don't know the details. I mean, the the United States Code, the immigration section, is just a mess. It's like worse than the tax code. Well, you've told me it won't, I mean, years ago. We, you and I were trying to fight against that, that stupid DMV bill in the legislature that was supposed to turn the DMV into a de facto immigration enforcement that's a good pa- example that bill was actually it, going to allow terrorists to get driver's licenses because this legislature didn't know how to draft a bill and it passed and everything that ha- everything you said would happen happened because there's right. what there's 80 different kinds of immigrant visas and the dmv has no idea how to you know understand who you are who these people are and in other states that people are having to go to the dmv with immigration attorneys and pay them a thousand bucks Right. So they get the, a driver's I mean, license. the DMV here in Alaska was denying driver's licenses to citizens, but they would give them to people who are here illegally because they didn't know anything about immigration law, and so they were confused. But you have people in the in the St. Louis House uh, or the the legislature saying, "Look at this bill. We're we're, we're going to, you know, f- control who gets dri- legal people aren't going to get driver's licenses," and and the whole well, thing just, I mean, it's it the bill got re- repealed, right? Didn't it get? Got challenged and yeah, I mean they're still trying to enforce immigration law down at the DMV, but they they really don't understand the system. So it's I mean the big complaints I get are typically like a U.S. citizen who can't get a driver's license because they happen to be born in Canada. You know their parents were in Canada when they were born, and so the DMV is like you're you were born in Canada. We need a you know consular report or birth abroad or a green card or something. You know and. They, remember, they would give Ted Cruz a hard time up here. They wouldn't let him have a driver's license. You know. I remember. I remember you and I testified. Or you testified, and I was there um, with some of the some of the legislators, and and you were. And I just was listening to it, and I, I felt like it was, it, it was like, um, you know, a PhD talking to like a kid. They just didn't seem to. Nobody yeah. understood what you were saying, and then they had these. The, some of the staffers had some response, like they had some ideas or some. And you were just saying, "This is totally wrong. This is totally wrong." Well, it, it it's kind of like if you're you know, a computer person trying to explain code to somebody that doesn't know anything more than the on off button, you know? Right. That's a good, yeah, good, good example. I mean, they just, it, the immigration code is so complicated and it's Congress's fault. They keep passing all these pieces of legislation and they don't make any sense. And they st- stick one provision in the code and it conflicts with a different one. And, and everybody goes, we must enforce the law. Well, what if it's crazy? And, and federal, and I mean, the, 
one point you made with that was was uh, immigration is federal law, and you guys are a, you guys are a state legislature trying to basically make the state enforce federal federal immigration law. Right. Which is a, and then there's a, the Why other. Why not make the state enforce federal tax law? You know, people would say, forget it. We're not going to let you do that. Or federal gun law. Yeah. Imagine whatever. that. Whatever. Well, yeah. Well, Margaret, so it's, we've already already been an hour. I want to, like I said, I think we could talk here for for five hours. It's fascinating. We We're, could. I just hope people will go read the Declaration of Independence, read the part about immigration in the Declaration of Independence, and we it, we would be all much better off if we returned to the fundamental concepts that our founding fathers knew. The secret sauce of America is immigration. We're a powerful superpower. We're a superpower today because we recognize that the best and the brightest wanted to come to America and the poor and the downtrodden and the huddled masses and they yeah, would make something of themselves. Emma Lazarus here. poem yeah, on the, no, on that's the statue. Our, that's our secret sauce of America. I just saw a thing on Vice. I was watching Vice yesterday and there, part of it was about this big tech boom in India and this, you know, these call centers, everybody right. calling to somebody from India. Well, now there's a whole thing of, of these call centers in India for Indians. And it was just kind of this boom in India with entrepreneurs. And they interviewed, uh, they sat down with like five entrepreneurs who were doing different things in India. And all five of them um, had lived in America. And one guy got offered a job at Google. Mm -hmm. And one guy had a big company started. Right. And, and they had been here for many years. And they went back to India. And it's interesting because um, the, the vice guy said, how much of this has to do with kind of what's going on in America and with Trump and immigration? And the one guy said, actually, a lot. I just, I just didn't feel welcome. And I didn't feel like I, I, I belonged. And... I had a job offer at Google, and now they're so we're losing people, who who we would are. be <clears throat> entrepreneurs and who would be hardworking people because it just does they don't seem maybe as welcome as they once they once were. Well, that's true, and it, it's to our detriment. You know, our country would be stronger if we welcomed immigrants. That's our founding principle. It's been our like I look said, at Google. A that's a, that's a that's a Russian yeah. Sergey Brin. That's a Russian. And the Canadians understand this, and the Canadians are kind of laughing at us because they're stealing all the smart people that can't get. Visas well, I had a I had a friend here, a Russian guy actually came here. Um, Dima, who was here for many years, came came for school, got his degree, became a CPA, um, actually got married, and for many years was an accountant here in Alaska. Tried to get his green card, and he had the H one B, you know, the the work uh, right. sponsored visa. And it took him a long time to try to get a green card, and he could. It was just expensive, and, and it took ten years, and he still hadn't had it. So he applies for Canadian um, equivalent of a green card, resident card. Had never been to Canada. They do a point system. Like I was in Australia, same thing in Australia. Right. You know, so if you speak English, if you have, you have a degree, how old you are, all your skills, mm -hmm. all numbers of points. And if you have enough points, yeah. And so he applied. It was like not even a year. He got granted the Canadian resident permit with his wife, went to Canada. They're both living there, they're working, they have a kid. The kid speaks two languages. They're, they're very skilled people. And they would have, mm -hmm. they would have stayed here if they could have, but they just didn't, they were tired of waiting. I have two other friends right now. He's Russian. She's Australian. They both American citizens, and they're moving back to Australia because they're just they just don't feel like they want to be they want to be in the country anymore. And they're both very smart, educated people. Yeah. Well, people are going to move where they feel comfortable, and if they don't feel comfortable in the United States, they'll go somewhere else. Do you think? I mean, there was talk for a while about Trump saying we should have a point system, merit-based point system, instead of the the lottery system or the the, the diversity lottery. Is that something that's you think going to happen, or that well, it just we, kind of we actually away? have a merit system already? People just it's not a point system. It's a list of things that you get into the country. You know, you can get a green card if you merit it, you know, um, it's really, really, really hard to just, if you're a regular well, Melania person, Trump got her green card that way, you know, the merit system, supposedly, you know, this was a long, this was a long time ago. This was no, it's, that's the, you know, employment based immigration system. You have to meet certain statutory criteria. It's just not, you don't get points for certain things, you but somebody, somebody abroad right now. So, so if I wanted to you know, immigrate to Canada or Australia, I could apply. And based on my age and my language and my degree and my work, I, I get so many points I apply without having right. a job That's a lined point up. system. We don't have a point we, we system, but we have a merit-based system on the employment side. You know, we take people that that can show that they're outstanding in something. You know, that's a merit-based system. It's just not a point system. But the, but the company has to spend the money, right? To Or the person has to put together an application and show how terrific they are. You know, I mean, if you get a Nobel Prize, they're going to let you immigrate to America in the employment-based first preference category. you got a gold medal in Olympics. They're going to let you. I mean, that's a merit-based system. It's but, just but, not but, a point system. But that, that's for more or less extraordinary. I mean, the average person who's educated, smart, speaks English young, who's not some extraordinary person. They just can't come in here. They're going to need an employer to sponsor them. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a merit system in the sense that the, what the Trump administration is doing is basically saying they want to do it the same way we're doing it now, but they're going to substitute 
points for this statutory list of things that you have to do, like get an employer to sponsor you and all that sort of thing. So it's kind of smoke and mirrors because they're not really planning on doing anything better than the way we're doing it now. They're just going to do it differently. And they're going to have a complicated point system, which will probably be carried out by bureaucrats. And, you know, it'll be just as complicated and expensive as it is now. It'll just be different. And the numbers will be lower. Well, I just, so you know. It's I, not what everybody thinks. It's just a different way of doing things. Uh, just for the sake of the country and for the sake of the society, I, I, I hope things, it just seems like the perception. There's so many people who are, who are just outright anti-immigrant. It doesn't matter where they're from. And then there's other people who just, they think there's these great laws in place when really the reality is they're super arcane and draconian and, and complicated. And few, like you said, a few people, I mean, you said nobody really in Congress understands the... We would be a lot better off if they repealed the whole thing and replaced it with something simple that made sense that the average person could understand. But they're not going to do that because too many people are making money off complicated. Well, in the meantime, you're doing. In the meantime, you're doing pretty. Business good for you, right? Business is crazy right now. Thank you, President Trump. Yep. Yeah, you're. You're just. You can't. Everybody keep, needs a lawyer. They're they're, they're the, breaking the breaking the door down, aren't they? It's crazy. Yep. I've I've, I've stopped. Uh, I've, I've <laughs> there's so many times my my immigrant friends, a lot of my foreign friends know I know you, so they 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 for a long time they were calling me thinking they were going to get like you know. So I felt bad. I kept sending you these people, and they were like didn't have any money. You know? <laughs> But but you 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 did um, you did a whole bunch of you've done a lot of pro bono work for mil- military. I, I've done a, a massive amount of pro bono work. I still do a lot of pro bono work. I'd say it's like twenty five percent of my practices. And it's just kind of word of mouth. People, hey, Margaret, help me. She can help you. Or well, I try to be selective about what cases I take. But I took a case recently for an indigenous person from Mexico who was deported after they gave him a sham hearing in a language he didn't understand, and they he had a lawyer and they asked him do you have a lawyer and allegedly he said no and agreed to be deported even though he had a lawyer and he had an asylum application pending and i just won that case and i did that basically pro bono and there's, there's um, the other guy um the guy that i met well the tattoo tattoo guy which was another interesting character that uh that, by the way he, he was he, a marine yeah he was a marine he gave me my first yeah. tattoo i met him through you but yeah he's he, a great guy he, yeah. he they were trying to deport him for going on vacation right yeah that was kind of complicated he got his citizenship though He's a U.S. citizen. He's good now, now but so he, they he was, can't deport no, him. They he were was, trying to deport him. He was a Marine. And yeah, they, they were trying try- to deport him. He's the guy who broke the guy's nose, and they were trying to deport him. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I lo- yeah. love that guy. He gave me my first tattoo. Yeah, no, he's a great guy. He, I got yeah. two tattoos. But he's an American citizen now, so he can vote now. By the way, he told me he would give you a free tattoo. He will, but I haven't decided what tattoo I want. So you should maybe get like an army symbol or you know, something with I don't know. I have to think hard about it. It's forever. Get, you can get the lieutenant colonel on the, on your shoulder, the rank permanently. <laughs> what if I got promoted? I guess what unless you, yeah, because if you become yeah. colonel, you have to, have yeah. to change it. Yeah. Well, Margaret, I want to thank you. This has been great. Uh, I, I really think people are going to enjoy listening to this. It's such a complicated topic and we're very lucky to have you uh, in the state and in Anchorage. And, and I know, you know, I know you, I want to thank you for agreeing to talk to me. We're lucky to. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It was a lot of fun. And I always like talking about immigration. So invite me back anytime. Okay. And if, if anybody's listening and I do have any immigration issues they can get a hold of you they can go to cascadia they can call cascadia cross-border law group in anchorage 242-5800 242-5800 we have an office in anchorage alaska it's a great office okay margaret thank you so much i appreciate it um again this is landmine radio jeff landfield here the alaska landmine podcast many more to come thanks for listening landmine radio